Episode 2 of Season 2 of Rigged covers the samples the Inspector General retested for their 2016 supplemental report. Many of these samples were asserted as being positive for drug substances when the Hinton lab originally tested them. Yet, when the OIG retested them, no drug substances were found. Many of these samples appear to have been spiked by Hinton Drug Lab chemists. Despite what the OIG has asserted, it appears Dukin wasn't the only Hinton Lab chemist to be changing negative results to positive. All breaking news, as always, on Rig, so please help support the pod by liking, subscribing, and telling a friend. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of Rig. All right, we are back. We're going to dive right into, we left off uh, talking about the supplemental report and the various drugs that were retested by the inspector general um, for their 2016 uh, supplemental report. And we are going to go with Hinton sample number B09-06865 With respect to this sample, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on December 30th, 2009, uh, the primary chemist preliminarily identified an off-white chunky substance as containing cocaine. This finding was based on a positive color test and two positive microcrystalline tests. Confirmatory chemists analyzed this substance twice on the GCMS, first on January 9th, 2010, finding no integrated peaks, and again on January 13th, this time finding the presence of cocaine. On January um, 14th, 2010, Hinton Drug Lab chemists certified that the sample contained cocaine. When the uh, NMS, which was the contract lab uh, that the OIG hired, retested that sample, it made no findings of any controlled substances. And then they notified the Essex County District Attorney's Office of this, quote, discrepancy. I wonder what Essex County did with that. So I was able to track down what they did with the um, preceding one. Yep. So the 2004 sample, again, I think I referenced in the last episode, the Inspector General sent them a rather generic letter stating that when this sample was retested, it contained no controlled substances. It didn't mention that they thought it had been tampered with. I would assume that they sent a similar, if not identical letter again to the Essex County DA's office regarding this other discrepancy. Um, But I do know the Essex County DA's office followed up uh, regarding the 2004 case and um, uh, the defendant's conviction was vacated. And then I believe a null process was filed if it wasn't dismissed at the Commonwealth's request. I can't, I can't exactly remember, but they're practically the same thing. Right. Well, it's good that they're dismissing them then. That's good. Um, yeah. So this one again, um, they're finding nothing. They retest it's cocaine and then the confirmatory comes in, finds nothing and then retest and it's cocaine. Yeah. I mean, extremely fishy, just like the last sample. Uh, and then, um, speaking of these positive color tests, we were discussing right before um, this episode started. There are real issues with field tests that um, the police use, but also the various Department of Corrections use um, in inmate uh, disciplinary hearings. And it, these things are routinely 
routinely uh, faulty. I mean, they, they give uh, false positives all the time. And the type of um, chemical reagent color tests that um, the chemists are doing before they uh, go on to um, send the samples off for further testing are essentially the same thing. Um, they're looking for the appearance of a color, which is highly subjective, and all sorts of things can trigger similar colors, um, even if they're not illegal substances. So again, um, just goes to show that um, you know these color tests are clearly not enough, um, and that's why so many people sue the police department after they've been you know, in jail for months and months and months when it turns out uh, the thing the field test said was cocaine or meth turned out to be like coffee grounds or cotton candy in one instance I was reading about the other day. <laughs> oh my God. Well, what, what, one of the other preliminary tests, I believe, is supposed to be uh, the microcrystalline test. Right. And, and that is one where you, the chemist is supposed to... Um, uh, provoke some sort of reaction that will physically and literally generate uh, visible crystals uh, that you can see in the microscope. And the point is that uh, uh, my understanding of Massachusetts law is that that's actually not only it, it, it's necessary and possibly the most important test that you do besides establishing that the thing is cocaine, because there's only one isomer, if I'm correct, in Ma under Massachusetts law that's actually illegal. So you have to not only prove that it's cocaine, you have to prove that it's illegal cocaine. Uh, and my understanding of uh, what may have been happening, especially if there's dry labbing going on um, or there's shoddiness in the, um, in the bench testing, is that if to the extent you're skipping the microscope test, you're not actually proving the thing that you have to prove under Massachusetts law. So there's a big concern that I have, and I don't think the OIG ever really acknowledge this or try to take this on, which is how often would you be able to prove that this thing that um, you think or you've said is cocaine is actually the correct isomer? Right. Yeah, and just in this example, uh, the non-illegal cocaine, I believe, um, is, has medical purposes for, I think, if I remember correctly, eye surgery is one of them. Um, but anyway, in case viewers were like, what's non-illegal cocaine? Well, I mean, but right. But this sort of gets to sort of the, 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 the subtext here is that the, the decision to, as what as to what is illegal and what is legal, I think everybody has to acknowledge that's arbitrary, right? The guys who write the, the statutes get to pick what's illegal and what isn't illegal and they pick. Well, if they didn't pick something, then you can complain about it, but it's not illegal. Right. And, and I want to note that we, you know, in the news, there was just a $26 million, uh, excuse me, $26 billion uh, settlement with states uh, involving legal uh, opioid distribution. Uh, and so somebody decided that that's okay uh, to, 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 to sell uh, opioids, uh, even though the damage inflicted by that um, uh, calamity may be far worse than uh, uh, some of the, uh, the the street drugs have inflicted during the same time period. We don't know. But um, obviously, there's an ar inherent arbitrariness. So I think that people need to push back when, when you hear someone say, well, it's, you know, if it sounds like cocaine, you shouldn't have it. Well, that's not how the, the law works. Right. 
and um, there's other drugs that are too new to be classified. And they, you know, in the drug war, they don't want any loopholes. And they, if they think that some, if they being the authorities think that something should be bad or something is bad and people should be arrested for it, it doesn't really matter what the law says, as we have found out, right? That we'll go over um, either later on in this episode or beyond, but chemists literally lie to apply um, legal, uh, what is it? What, what legal classifications to drugs that are not classified in the state. So here's Hinton sample number B10-07736 with respect to this sample. The drug lab paperwork indicates that on October 1st, 2010, the primary chemist preliminarily identified a brown, mushy, sticky substance, uh-oh, as containing THC, a component of marijuana, and this was 2010, Ilya. So was marijuana still illegal? Maybe. I think so. It, I think it became, uh, in Massachusetts, I think it became legal in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, it also depends on quantity, but right. um, that's not going to stand in the way of the drug lab testing it. No, um, God, no. The, the overwhelming majority of citizens saying, stop worrying about people smoking pot is not going to stop these guys from throwing you in jail for it. This finding was based on a GC, a GC analysis that indicated the presence of THC as well as a weak positive color test. Confirmatory, chem, uh, confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS, first on October 13th, 2010, finding no integrated peaks, and again on October 14th, 2010, finding the presence of THC. Go figure. On October 26, 2010, the Hinton Lab chemists um, certified that the sample contained THC, a Class D substance. And when NMS retested it, it made no findings of any controlled substances. The OIG notified the Essex County DA's office of this discrepancy. I mean... Although, yeah, the most striking thing about this to me is that here is uh, a pretty uh, uh, overt reference to the standalone GC machine. So as I understand, and as I believe the Commonwealth has represented to in, in court cases, how testing works, at no point is there a standalone GC used as part of the protocol. That's not part of the workflow. I'm, I'm not saying it, uh, it couldn't be used under any circumstance. I'm just pointing out that you have a machine that doesn't generate electronic records that only prints something, you could throw out that printout if you wanted to, and there's no trace of what you've tested. Um, and there's no way to uh, definitively match the sample tested to the actual sample uh, uh, that's the subject of a criminal case. And this is a machine that, that keeps kind of rearing its head um, and it, it confounds the government narrative that this was all just rushing and sloppiness to do something on a standalone GC actually takes time. It actually takes more time to do it that way than to just do your spot tests. And so I'm, I'm uh, interested anytime I see a reference to the standalone GC because no one's ever adequately explained to me what purpose it served. And if it serves a legitimate purpose, why wasn't it part of the protocol? Yeah. Or in any of the SOPs or, you know, like, yeah. I mean, they, they didn't really have many, but still like... That's what I mean by protocol, meaning... If your SOP says, hey, when you get a sample and you don't know what it is, stick it in the standalone GC machine, sure. But now you've told people 
that you got a sample and you didn't know what it was. Right. Um, instead, they take these samples and they like to say, well, we, 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 we tested it for cocaine or marijuana and, you know, it reacted as it's supposed to in the spot tests. So then we trotted over to the GCMS department and tested it. And sure enough, it is what we, we say it is. Um, they don't talk about this middle step where you got to go to a standalone GC uh, and, and, um, and deal with that. And I know, and I don't know if it's expl- explicit uh, from last episode when we covered my client sample, but my client sample was subjected to the standalone GC. Um, and that's not referenced uh, in the OIG report. So it seems like they didn't mention it unless maybe they absolutely had to. And this might have been a case where they absolutely had to because maybe that was the only preliminary test, uh, which would be then a deviation, as I understand it, from the lab SOPs. So the problem is they didn't, as the report, the initial report said they didn't actually have formal adopted standard, uh, standard operating procedures they had a draft of something that was never finally approved. And then they had a training uh, manual for new chemists. So, you know, one of the problems inherent in not actually having formal procedures is you have chemists running around sort of doing whatever tests they want, potentially without the proper training, and then also without, um, you know, documentation that can back up um, their results. Um, the other thing that I was going to say, uh, when I first read this paragraph, it sounded to, sounded to me like maybe this could have been a residue and maybe there was just not enough of it and that could have caused these problems. However, earlier on in the supplemental report, the OIG said they removed the residues. So that I don't think would tend to explain it. Right. They said that, but then they tested another, there's another residue that they did actually test. And so um, go ahead. It's just odd, the inconsistent treatment yeah. and the unclarity or the way that the report is written um, leads to confusion. It's, it's just very haphazard. And clearly they're looking to speak to the fact that so first of all, with, with all with the supplemental report itself, it the fact that it exists shows that Dukin was not the lone bad actor, right? Because there's a bunch of different chemists doing like a bunch of, I mean, they're somehow turning negatives to positives somehow, right? They test it once, it's negative. They test it twice, it's negative. They test it a third time, it's positive. Then they give it to someone to confirm it and it's negative and then it's positive again, you know? And, and, I, and yeah. they're not telling defense attorneys any of this. Now, now, Chris, um, are you, have you represented drug clients? You have represented uh, drug clients in, in cases, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and have you ever received any kind of paperwork saying that there was a negative test or there were multiple tests for uh, the drug testing results? Well, uh, I mean, in an ordinary case, you know, prior to, um, you know, this whole scandal, uh, one of the things that was an issue with sort of the whole criminal defense bar was that no one really questioned this stuff too much. So, um, you know, people would just get the drug certificate, you know, prior to Melendez-Diaz at least, and then sort of that would be it. And then people, 
started challenging um, these cases and started finding, uh, you know, things that they could get into on cross that was in the lab paperwork. Um, but as, as far as, as my cases, um, sometimes in the lab packet, it might indicate um, that it was sent back to uh, the sent back for a second test or one or more tests on the we um, on the control sheet. Um, however, that's not always the case, and I think the inspector general's initial report indicated that they weren't you know routinely um, keeping track of this. Um, one of the ways that we were trying to figure out how many samples that this occurred in was they actually um, had like handwritten logbook entries and you could see in the margin when samples were returned um, to the evidence room and then taken out again for whatever reason. Um, but I, I don't believe that sort of thing was included in the lab packets. That was a separate set of documents that was given to the CPCS and the defense bar after the lab had closed. So really, right. I'm, I'm talking state police, though, recent history. Oh, recent history. Um, I think after the scandal broke, there were, you know, people realized that they're required to <laughs> tell you if the test has been run multiple times. Mm -hmm. The majority of my work over the past two years has been trying to um, undo the convictions in these remaining cases. I see. So, well, I, I asked another um, defense attorney uh, on Twitter if they had ever um, received anything back from the lab saying, indicating that there was a multiple run test on the, on one drug sample. And they said that they absolutely never received anything like that. And I, I can speak for my client, his green card or the card, the control card, I, I call it the green card. I don't know if it's actually green, um, but the, the back of his control card only had the final test. Right. Um, and I think that segues into something that, you know, people could be listening and saying, who cares if they test it more than once? Well, there's a problem when you testify under oath, as started happening after Melendez Diaz and in the case of my client, when you when you say we tested it and it was cocaine, that's misleading if you actually tested it more than once and the first time it wasn't cocaine. Right. And and so there's a there's a, what, it, what amounts, in my opinion, to perjury that took place on a rampant level if there was no disclosure of multiple runs, uh, as was the case of my client uh, uh, in the case of my client. If the jury had heard that they had run it first time and it was it came back, you know, inconclusive and they ran it again. First of all, the cross examination is very different of, of Andy Dukin, who testified. And two, the jury is going to say, what's going on here? Yeah. Why is it coming back as something like, I mean, we'll, we'll, we see in these examples, it comes back as all sorts of different things or nothing. Or nothing. And, right. And, and, and it's important that it was nothing in court. To your point, like there goes their case. They know it. Right. And, and, and contamination then rears its head once again, which is that if you retest it and somehow now you've contaminated it, uh, now, of course, you're going to get a positive result. And I think, you know, the listener might say, well, what's the big deal? But imagine that you uh, blew, pulled, got pulled over for drunk driving and you're sober as you've ever been in your life. 
Uh, and you, you the, the cop pulls out the breathalyzer, which they don't use anymore because they don't work, but you blow into it and it comes back, you know, below the line and the cop's like, hold on, let's do that again. And he fiddles with the machine and you do it again. And now you're over the limit. You uh, would think that you're not going to be hopping mad in that circumstance. Of course you'd be hopping mad. And I don't think that you get a conviction under that fact pattern. So, um, so I think that, that that this idea that multiple runs sounds kind of uh, boring and, and sort of inside baseball, but actually it's, 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 it's crucial when there was live testimony where that multiple rounds of testing was not disclosed. Again, it points to bias of the lab. And also, you know, maybe I'm giving them too much credit and they may not have been this sophisticated, but mass rule criminal procedure... 14 governing pretrial discovery the sections dealing with um automatic discovery and mandatory discovery for the defendant there's a section there about expert witnesses and um it says that they have to provide intended expert opinion evidence other than uh hold on um such discovery shall include the identity current curriculum vitae and lists of publications of each intended expert witness and all reports prepared by the expert that pertain to the case. So, I mean, if they were sophisticated enough, they could have said, if I never memorialize this in a report, you never have to hand it over. Um, I, again, I don't, I don't know if that's giving them too much credit, but at least one of the things that Charles Salemi told the OIG in his interview makes me somewhat suspicious because when he was talking about uh, swig drug, he was complaining about the fact that they make you write everything down and they didn't like that very much because then you can get challenged on it in court. Yeah. And there's a saying in actual like uh, authorized labs that if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And that is, that's basically because every human memory is faulty. You can't just go by what you thought, you know, like you have to have it documented on an approved procedure in an approved process in order to prove to a regulatory body that, hey, this is, this is what we said happened. It happened on this date. Here's the paperwork. Here's everything that says that they don't want that because they want wiggle room to say, Oh no, you know, this didn't happen on this day. They just want to give you the final paper. They don't want to, they don't want you to know how, you know, whatever they say the sausage yeah. was made or however, <laughs> you know, what, what tests went into getting that positive result. But at the end of the day, the lab, according to the OIG had a 96% positive test result rate there. Yeah, and so I think you're saying, like in a real accredited lab, when people use that phrase, it's in a non-nefarious way. They're not saying, yeah. if you write this, then yeah. people will they're never... Saying it, they're they, saying you have to document yeah. stuff or else you right. can't prove it. Right. So with respect to Hinton Drugs Lab sample uh, D805498... Jane, before you yeah. go to that one, uh, yeah. or, sorry, earlier, I don't know if you excuse me, said this, I apologize, but earlier you said that this supplemental OIG report proves uh, Dukin was not the sole bad actor, but the sam the prior sample that you did, the marijuana one, uh, the chemists, uh, I don't believe uh, Annie Dukin was one of them. Uh, right. I think it was uh, uh, Kate Corbett and Della Saunders. So, um, you know, that would have 
cause me, if I were in the OIG and I had just finished this report for which I got some awards saying so bad actor, that would cause me probably one or two sleepless nights uh, and, and, and maybe a half a bottle of Tums until I got to the bottom of how there could be non-Duke and samples involved uh, squaring with my conclusion. Right. <clears throat> with mysterious negative and positive results like happening all over the place. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, if there was like 0.01%, you know, of these samples turning up out of everything they retested, you know, maybe you could chalk that up to human error. Right. But we were talking about the percentages in the last episode, and it's not 0.0001%. It's a lot and a frightening amount. And all, but dude, human error should be caught in process. If you have a good enough uh, quality system and quality processes, you catch human errors. You know, like it, it, nothing should get through. If you staff correctly, have the appropriate quality system and quality processes, uh, you know, you're never going to have these kind of problems. Maybe one out of, you know, a million will get through. Right. But the time you, to find the severed finger at the chicken nugget factory is before it gets in the bag. Right. Right. <laughs> right. With, so with respect to that last sample that I said, the drug lab paperwork indicates that, that on approximately February 15, 2006, the primary chemist preliminary identified. And notice how they're, they, they named every single chemist. I think, Ilias, you made this point. They named every chemist under the sun in the original OIG report. But then they say uh, Dukin's lone bad actor. And by the way, we're not naming a single chemist in our next report That's, that says a bunch of chemists effed up. And no follow-up questions. Yep. Uh, so the primary chemist preliminary identified a burnt cigarette as containing a THC a burnt wow really a burnt joint that's what they're testing this finding was based on visual and microscopic analysis so visual analysis is garbage by the way garbage a positive color test and a positive GC analysis a uh, confirmatory chemist analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS. The first time on February 18, 2006, the confirmatory chemist found no integrated peaks, a.k.a. nothing, zilch. The second time on February 22, 2006, the confirmatory chemist found the presence of uh, THC and cannaboil and a, a, break, a breakdown of THC. On February 28th, the Hinton Drug Lab chemist certified that the sample contained marijuana. When uh, NMS retested it, it found, uh, can, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Canna, cannabinol. Cannabinol, a substance not classified under Massachusetts law, but not THC. And the Middlesex uh, District Attorney's Office was notified of this discrepancy. So what the hell were they doing? So this, by the way, this could be, I mean, this could be a lot of things, right? But what, what this could be is, um, you know, another spiking. Um, yeah. Spiking case. All and again, I'll just... Spiking, dude. They, all of I'll note that this spiking. one doesn't, also doesn't involve Andy Dukin. Um, uh, it's my uh, understanding um, uh, but, uh, I, I believe it involves uh, Kate Corbett and, and Peter Pirro. Um, but, uh, and so I'm not saying it was spiked, but it would, that would explain why anytime you find two things um, in, a, in a sample 
And then when it's retested, you only find one. There, there's a possibility that the second, the one that's missing was, uh, was quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes now, added um, somehow uh, to the other sample, as was the case in, in my case, where they found cocaine and you know, a fatty acid that is uh, common in foods um, when all that was there was actually just the fatty acid. So you didn't, there wasn't cocaine, but maybe somebody kind of accidentally sort of put some cocaine in, uh, or maybe there was contamination. Um, and, uh, so that would be, um, I think something to investigate. I don't think that you just simply say, oh, case closed, uh, no, no THC. I think you'd have to start looking at why was there THC, uh, in one of those, uh, in, in the, in the final test when you didn't get it in the first test and NMS didn't get it in the last test. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I mean, like out of all the samples we've discussed so far, this one maybe bothers me the least because it was burnt matter that yeah. they're trying to, you know, uh, investigate and, uh, you know, that can, you know, burning a substance can do all sorts of things to it. So this one sort of doesn't bother me quite as much as the other ones where there just is no cane in the sample. And then it is perfectly cocaine. Yep. Um, I, I agree, but all of them bother me. They, this whole, this whole report bothers me. Um, with respect, I mean, the fact that it even, why does it exist? Why, why are these, why were, why was this stuff not found when they did their original report? This is significant. And they just like, of course, held it off for two years and then swept it all under the rug with respect to Hinton drug lab sample um, number D74058. The drug lab paperwork indicates that on January 20, 20th, 2005, the primary chemist preliminarily identified an off white pill as possibly an anabolic steroid. Steroid uh, based on appearance and labeling. Confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance four times on the GCMS, four times. The result of the first GCMS analysis on January uh, 21st, 2005 are unavailable. They're just not there. Uh, there's a footnote with that. In this instance, Navigant was able to determine that the sample was first run on the GCMS on, May tw on January 21st, 2005, but the results of the run are not readable due to corrupt data. Okay, there you go. The second time, well, I know they also had boxes and boxes of um, paper readouts associated with cases. Um, when we got photographs that the Mass State Police took of the lab, and then also later CPCS was allowed in, one of the rooms had boxes of these old files. Um, so it's unclear to me whether Navigant is saying. Uh, that they actually took the hard drive from the GCMS and there was some issue with it or maybe something went wrong with the scanning of the paper records, but it just, um, just, I thought I'd note that it's unclear to me what exactly they mean. Well, and uh, yeah, it, it, corrupted you know. data could mean a million different things, you know? And I'm sorry, which sample were you, uh, uh, did you just do? Um, that would be D seven four zero five eight zero. Okay, because I, I um, okay. 
Uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I have some thoughts for the next one. Uh, okay. I was gonna jump ahead. Sorry. All right. We'll keep uh, going. This one, so this one, the second the number time, of things they find in there. <laughs> the second time on February eighth, two thousand five, the confirmatory chemist found the presence of the presence of uh, two drugs. I can't pronounce them. Phenobarbital, and Fino, then I, I don't even know how to pronounce that one. Yeah, nemo nemoxylide. I don't know. The latter, a substance not classified under Mass state law. Somehow that didn't get into the uh, the trial, like Ilias was saying. Weird. The third time on February 10th, 2005, the confirmatory chemist found the presence of that second drug, uh, nemociliide, but not for, uh, phenobarbital. The fourth time on February 16th, 2005. So they started this. They started testing this stuff um, on January 21st. And then almost a month later, they're on the same sample. Is that rushing? <laughs> and do they do this for things that came up positive? Test them five times? The, the fourth time on February 16th, 2005, the confirmatory chemist found the presence of both phenobarbital and nemociliide. And on February 22nd, the Hinton Lab chemist certified that the sample contained phenobarbital, a class D substance. No wonder there was a backlog. <laughs> when NMS tested, there still is. When NMS retested it, it made a finding of nemociliide, a substance not classified under mass state law, but not phenobarbital. After the sample was retested, the OIG determined that this sample did not result in an adverse disposition for the defendant. Therefore, the OIG did not notify the district attorney's office of this discrepancy. Isn't that like it? So they clearly have an agenda. They're not saying, oh, these chemists are effing with evidence. District attorney, figure this out. Attorney general, figure this out. These chemists are clearly messing with evidence. It's like, nope, unless someone went to jail, we don't give a crap. Unbelievable. All right. So here, Ilias, you want to take us through this one? Uh, th this would be uh, D775714. Yes. So this one, this one I think is sort of interesting. Um, uh, I'll, I'll read you. Uh, I'll read what it said. Actually, I, I like when you read it. Actually, it's, okay. it's, it's more uh, fun. But I'll just. I like when Dad tells a story. Yeah. yeah <laughs> With respect to the drug lab sample, uh, what Ilias just said, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on November eighth, two thousand six, the primary chemist preliminarily identified an orange round tablet with the markings of an R on one side and 129 on the reverse side. <clears throat> By appearance and labeling, as well as a positive GC analysis as, as containing uh, colon clonidine. Clonidine. So. Um, confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS first in on November 13, 2006, finding no controlled substances. And again, on November 14th, 2006, this time finding the presence of clonidine. On November 17th, 2006, the Hinton Drug Lab chemist certified that the sample contained clonidine, a classy substance, their favorite. When uh, NMS retested it, it made no findings of any controlled substances. The, so someone definitely went to jail for this because the OIG notified the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office of this discrepancy. So what did you want to say about that one? Alex? Yeah, well, I, well, I would say two things. One, I think one of the benefits of private school is that you learn how to pronounce the names of all these drugs. Um, 
right? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, two, so what's interesting is, uh, and I'm basing this now on secondhand, but, but a, my understanding is that according to the uh, Fox Pro or whatever database that is, was made available to the, um, uh, the defense bar, the only chemist associated with this sample was Mr. Charles Salemi. He's the only chemist listed in the database. So what's intriguing to me is the basis for the OIG to use the phrase um, uh, primary chemist and then elsewhere confirmatory chemists, plural. So I read that to mean that there were three chemists involved, but somehow only one shows up in the database. And why there would be multiple confirmatory chemists makes no sense. Um, and uh, although sometimes people use the plural to obscure uh, the fact that there's not even one person who did something, um, right? You, you know, you ask a kid who told you that you could do this. They say, my parents. Uh, the, very likely that meant nobody. Um, but uh, so that's fascinating to me because I think that that should be investigated either because data was lost, right? Meaning somebody went in and deleted chemists from the database, which should never happen. Or maybe there was only one chemist. And why is OIG trying to make you think there were multiple chemists? Right. I mean, they did. So after that corrective action report, they, there was the caveat that, um, you know, if there was a rush with approval, one chemist could do it if it was really important. But that doesn't explain, um, you're right, the use of plural confirmatory chemists. Um, in this paragraph, and I don't have the Hidden Drug Lab evidence database entries for this, but if that's correct, it appears very misleading. Right, and I mean, if one person did it, just say one person did it. It's like this was this uh, this was at a time that, and and I, and I uh, this is an issue. It's it's sort of um, a minor issue in one sense, but it it really bothers me because there's never been clarity on this, and 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 I think there's been false uh, testimony about this that whether there was at any time uh, a two-chemist system, uh, a three-chemist system, a one-chemist system, or, Jamie, as you said, that it was a free-for-all and people did whatever they wanted to, which, you know, if it's a free-for-all, just say it's a free-for-all. But that's not it's what not. chemists said on the stand. Yeah. And that's not what they told uh, our, our, the judges who have made very important decisions affecting people's freedom based on a belief that it's an uncontested fact that there was a two-chemist system. And if you don't always have a two-chemist system, say it so right. that people know who to cross-examine and know uh, what facts to tease out. Um, so I think that's a real uh, issue. And once again, there's a positive GC analysis reference, which tells me it's a standalone GC. Um, I think that this, in this case, uh, the pill markings weren't enough or were deemed not enough. Right. So they went to GC to, to try to characterize it, which again, I would have no problem with that. That actually is probably a pretty accurate way to understand what that substance is, but you have to disclose it. And the problem when you disclose the standalone GC is if it comes back and doesn't say what you want, now you have to disclose that too. Right. And if they really didn't care, they would just report that and move on. They wouldn't right. test it five times for a month. And so to me, this is sort of the heads I, I win, tails you lose uh, aspect of, of, of the, the, the drug lab system that was in place. 
that we can test it as many times as we want. And we'll only tell you about the positive one. And when we have a machine that we won't even tell you that we use so that it doesn't hurt us when it doesn't show what we want, but when it does show what we want, we'll tell everybody, you know, Hey, we got a positive GC. Um, and that, that really uh, irks me because no one's ever done an analysis of whether all of those standalone GC tests matched all of the subsequent GCMS tests. I don't think that's been done on a statistical basis um, uh, unless they're always counting those as multi-runs. And it's unclear whether they always count a standalone GC test uh, as a, a one of the multi-runs. So the next one is basically the same thing, B09-03371. The paperwork indicates that on November 5th, 2009, the primary chemist was unable to identify a green round tablet with no visible markings based on one color test and a GC analysis. There you go, Ilias. There's your GC. Conf confirmatory chemist analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS. The first time on November 14th, 2009, the confirmatory chemist found no controlled substances. The second time on November 21st, 2009, the confirmatory chemist found the presence of uh, clonidine. Um, on December 1st, 2009, Hinton Drug Lab chemists certified that the sample contained clonidine, a Class E substance, and when it was retested, there was no controlled substance found. And the OIG notified Suffolk County about that one as well. Um, with respect to the Hinton Drug Lab sample D746009, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on June 2nd, 2005, the the primary chemist preliminarily identified liquid in a needle and syringe as containing cocaine. My God, th this finding was based on one positive color test, two positive microcrystalline tests, and an inconclusive GC analysis. So there's the GC again. Confirmatory chemist analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS. First on June 9th, 2005, and again on June 15th, 2005 finding the presence of cocaine both times. So why, why did they test it three times? On June 20th, 2005, Hitton Drug Lab chemists certified that the sample contained cocaine, a Class B substance. When it was retested, uh, the, the lab made no findings of any controlled substance. Wow. I wish they told us what, if anything, they did find, right? Like, Note right. that this sample is a residue. What is going on here? But anyway, it, so they said that this was a residue and was tested by NMS before the OIG instructed NMS not to test residue. The OIG, and then they so right there is an example <laughs> as to why they should be testing residue. Right, right. By the way, yeah, um, that's a fascinating sentence to unpack because <laughs> there's so much in play here. First of all, OIG forgot to tell NMS not to test residues until they had already been testing residues. So there's a, you know, uh, I hope someone puts that on their resume. Two, um, the reason they instructed NMS not to test residue samples is because NMS started reporting back, hey, your residues don't have anything illegal in them. And they, they said, you know, uh, swear word, uh, bleep, uh, let's stop testing residues. So this is consistent. And I think OIG you know, uh, a couple of times makes decisions that I think are questionable in the, the dis decision of which samples to test and which not to test. And we covered that last time. Uh, and they always erred on the side of 
finding as few problems as possible. This was an effort to put the uh, the, the 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 matter to bed um, with as with as few scary uh, uh, discoveries as possible. Uh, and and I think this is uh, an example, Jamie. You're 100 right. This is to me. This would be why you would test uh, everything um, because you want to know what it is, what what you can say it is. Uh, you can argue about the implications later, uh, but don't try to uh, hide uh, what might be a, a, a true negative um, just because it's a residue. You don't know what kind of residue it is. Right. And all these residue samples, like how many people went to jail for them? And then if if one of them comes back with like every test the Hinton lab did said it was cocaine, somehow they kept doing it tests for God knows what reason. They did it a million times. So I guess they did test positive tests. But they, they, it comes back positive, but it was negative. Right. Well, to underscore your point, the, the sample was identified as, quote, liquid in a needle. Now, I don't yeah. know if anybody has ever looked at a needle before, but the amount of liquid in that needle is minuscule. So what they found was a needle with, with residue in it. Now, maybe I don't, well, I don't know what the working definition of residue is, but that's a tiny amount. Well, I mean, it could have been full. I mean, there's, we don't have enough describing the sample, but anyway. I wanna... Well, they, oh, they do say syringe. You're right. They, they say needle and syringe, but you know, right? We don't we don't know what they had. But Jamie's point, you know, that never was a bar for conviction that it was a residue. So um, the next one is the last one uh, with respect to uh, Hinton Drug Sub Lab. D640286, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on approximately March 14th, 2003, approximately, huh? <laughs> the, the primary chemist, and there's a footnote with that, the OIG was unable to locate the powder sheet for this sample and relied solely on handwritten notes located on the back of the control card in the control sheet. Oh, wow. The prime, they can't even find the paperwork for this place, dude. Come on. Like, that's what I mentioned earlier when they interviewed several chemists. They pointed out how they discovered Dukin wasn't filling out her powder sheets, and that was potentially indicative of fraud. And that's what we found with a whole lot of Sonia Ferrick samples. So, anyway, um, you can go. No, but that. you don't fill out your paperwork. And like I said, if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. So you don't fill that out. And that's why I say it was a free-for-all because they weren't even made to fill out their paperwork. If they were made to fill out their paperwork, then that's a standard. You know, every no one could get beyond that. But no one was, it was ad hoc. You did what you mm -hmm. wanted. The primary chemist was an, unable to identify tablets based on an ultraviolet uh, spectroscopic analysis. Um, and a color test. The same chemist analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS, first on March 15th, 2003, finding no controlled substances, and again on March 21st, 2003, finding the presence of LSD. It is the OIG's understanding that approximately on, on approximately March 24th, 2003, a hidden drug lab chemist certified that the sample contained LSD a class B substance. When MMS retested this sample, it made no findings of any controlled substances. It was the OIG's understanding that the contents of this sample may have degraded 
NMS tested the sample before OIG instructed MMS <coughs> excuse me, not to test samples that appeared degraded. <laughs> like a bunch of different things about this sample, but like regarding the last few sentences there, I mean, you, you should maybe should have included in the report what NMS found, you know, if it's the substances that LSD degrades into or, or metabolites. Right. Uh, sometimes, even if it's no longer LSD, you might be able to tell the public here they couldn't confirm it, but it, it contained XYZ inside of it, which are the component parts of LSD. But we don't have that. There's just no explanation. And yeah. we see the OIG instructing NMS not to test those, even though there would be a more reasonable way of, of going about doing that, as I just described. The other thing that's really odd is uh, a <laughs> sentence that says, it is the OIG's understanding that on approximately March 24th, 2003, a Hinton drug lab chemist certified that the sample contained LST. So like, what is that? So they weren't <laughs> right. able to find the certificate of analysis? Is that no, what they, they weren't. Did? It says right in the footnote, uh, the OIG oh, I believe was it. unable to locate the drug cert. I believe it's not also, it's also not in the database. It's so, not in the database, but they could have contacted the um, police department because they were required to keep them. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, I wanted to say, but because we don't know who the chemists were, uh, we don't, uh, we don't know. Um, I can't say whether it's Dukin or not, but the two prior samples uh, that Jamie, that you read, Annie Dukin was not involved in either of those. Um, and so, well, you know, once again, there's this narrative that it's all Annie Dukin, but when you start looking at the samples, these sort of pre-selected samples that OIG was willing to have retested, um, uh, you know, that narrative doesn't hold up. In fact, this couldn't have been Dukin because it's the year before she started, and it's a couple of months before Farrick um, started there. So, uh, you know, couldn't have been either of them. Um, so, right. I mean, that sort of and you know, the, OIG the OIG's like, narrative, but also, I mean, people have been relying on the OIG's representations for a very long time, up to and including Rachel Rollins's recent decision to um, treat all um, hidden drug lab cases for a certain period of time as cases that ought to be dismissed. Uh, and I think this case falls outside of that time frame. Um, if I remember correctly, she put the cap at either May or June of 2003 when Farrick either started training or when she was officially assigned to become an actual full-fledged chemist. But this is this is before that happened. Well, uh, and like you're, I mean, so the point there, Chris, is that it's a false narrative to say that malfeasance at the lab happened the minute Dukin walked into that lab. That's false. Yeah, I mean, and if, if they had gone, if they had actually given a shit and had gone back, you know, since the lab had opened, since they had records and said, okay, how many times have they tested something more than once in the history of the lab? Not just since 2003, in the entire history of the lab. Yeah. So in any event, I would certainly like to know which chemist worked on this case. And uh, I, I didn't want to um, suggest that there was anything 
um, you know, terribly wrong about uh, Rollins' decision. It's certainly laudable, but um, it's potentially possible that there's evidence that the cutoff date for people who deserve relief should be pushed back further. It should be since the this lab was opened. Well, there's a there's a belief, a perception that OIG did a competent, neutral, thorough, uh, and reliable uh, investigation. And I think the problem is there's too many um, unsettled questions. There's too many corners that were cut. There's too many conclusions which might be dubious uh, or might not have the underpinnings that, that you would need to verify. Um, and so I think that there should be some uh, questions asked about how uh, a, a report or, or a series of reports that were supposed to cover so much ground uh, and invest, leave no stone unturned seem to have left a lot of stones unturned. Right. And undermine its own conclusion in its own report. You know? Now, do you guys, I mean, there are a number of other samples. I don't know if we're going to get through them all. Would you rather jump to the BZP and Foxy section? Um, yeah. Well, the next, there's a couple specific ones that you wanted to talk out, talk about that you already flagged. Um, so I would I, like to go through them and then do another episode on BZP and Foxy. I just want to des- dedicate a whole episode to that. If you guys are okay with that, okay. I think we should uh, just tee up though that the the ones we've done so far are ones where the the uh, there was a positive certification for drugs, but then NMS tested it and wasn't able to find any illegal uh, uh, drug substance. The next batch, I believe, I'm not sure which order you want to go, but but the uh, among the next batches are uh, samples. Uh, that um, uh, could only find controlled substance by one analytical method only. Um, And I don't know how sexy that is. There's individual cases that might be good, and there's definitely problems with the workflow. Uh, And then there's also ones that um, where... It's like a totally different chemical. (laughs) They found the wrong... That's that's why it's interesting to me. It's just like, this is clearly out of control. Right. And the ones where they find the wrong drug substance... And I think that's interesting, but again, it's less sexy. I think a listener who hears, well, they certified it was cocaine, but it was actually heroin, whatever, that person needed to go to prison anyway. Uh, I'm not, I don't endorse that view, but I'm just saying that that's a little bit harder uh, to, to, I think, um, uh, focus the, 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 the spotlight on, on the actual um, mistakes that were in the lab, but we can do it if you want. I just want to tell you. The, the first this. two in this list are pretty interesting because they end up finding a class E substance, but not oxycodone, which uh, when it's possession or possession with intent to distribute, it's a class B, but then also if if there's a trafficking case with hundreds of pills, they can get you on using a derivative opium. um, And it's, you sort of face the same penalties as if you were trafficking heroin. But anyway, go on. Well, here, so this one's interesting, right? The second one, B10-11771-1, um, so with respect to this one, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on January 11, 2011, the primary chemist preliminarily identified uh, blue round tablets with markings of M on one side and underscored 30 on the reverse side by appearance and labeling as containing oxycodone. They did not run a test on this. No test. This, in fact, um, 
Well, then they say it's it's it is. Oh, go ahead. Yep. We're looking at number two here. Yeah, we're looking at number two. Yeah, I mean, keep keep reading the, the paragraph, though. This is, in fact, consistent with the appearance and labeling of an oxycodone tablet. Boy, they're making excuses right in the report for them. Confirmatory chemists analyzed this substance twice on the GCMS, first on January 15th, 2011, finding the presence of uh, trametadol, and again on January 29th, 2011, finding the presence of the presence of oxycodone. On February 8th, 2011, Hinton Drug Lab chemists certified the samples contain oxycodone. And then when it was retested by NMS, they said it found trametadol. And oh, as no- substance, but not oxycodone. Right. As so- noted above, <clears throat> around Sorry, the time right. that this sample uh, was analyzed by the Hinton Drug Lab, chemists there had observed an influx of counterfeit oxycodone tablets that primarily contained termatidol. It's like, why would they even throw that sentence in there? Well, well, it it, it actually making an excuse, right? It, it points to so so. Just, let me unpack a few things here. First of all, making a preliminary uh, uh, test um, uh, uh, through mere identification on the markings is my understanding is that's exactly what they did at Hinton. They didn't. Yeah. There was no other uh, bench test that they would do other than open up your big book of drugs. And say, oh, this one has you know the thirty on one side and the M on the other, so that's oxycodone, and you're you know you're going to go to prison, um, and um, uh, without any regard for the fact that that could be counterfeit. Now, obviously, the second phase, which is the GCMS, is supposed to tell you if it's counterfeit, and it did. It told you it was tramadol, and so at the time they observed an influx. To me, that's end of the story. Looks like oxycodone actually is tramadol, uh, you know, uh, nothing to see here, move along, uh, it's a counterfeit. But instead they said, no, 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 we're hell-bent on finding oxycodone. And then they, they re- retest it and it is. And then, uh, and then they, uh, it goes to NMS and NMS says, no, actually it's tramadol. Now I want to pause here, Chris, the elements to, of proving a class D um, uh, 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 drug violation besides possession are what? You, you have to prove what the, the substance actually is. So right. is, there's okay. very... You, you but isn't there another what, element, which is that you don't have a lawful prescription? Uh, that's true. So w- the, 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 the person is arrested for oxycodone, right? You don't need a prescription... Uh, or, or you, that's not a prescription is not a, probably a defense. I have no idea. It's class B, right? Um, so you can have a you, prescription for oxygen. You can, but if you had a prescription, if, if they arrest you for tramadol and you have a prescription, you walk, right? That's the way it's supposed you, to work. I mean, so, I mean, if you don't have it on, the way it practically speaking works is you get arrested. Uh, if you don't have it in a prescription bottle, the police can just check right away. And if you don't have a copy of the, prescription little pad that your doctor had signed then after you get arraigned your attorney is going to contact the doctor or the pharmacy and get proof that you actually have the prescription and then the da's office is going to null process the case but they're going to um, ask for the thing they thought it was right meaning if if they said it's oxycodone 
they're going to ask about oxycodone, not tramadol. So you don't, after the fact, know that that's an actual class E violation. It's a class E substance. Mm -hmm. You don't know that a class E crime was committed Mm -hmm. because you didn't ask, does the guy have a tramadol prescription? Now, there's an awkward fact that maybe the doctor didn't prescribe tramadol in the form of counterfeit oxycodone (laughs) pills. But that's the but 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 again, you're running you're you're running roughshod over uh, the law and the rights of a, of an accused because you're you're sort of saying, well, we would have nailed him on tramadol. You don't know that the guy could have actually had a tramadol prescription. So um, the other thing I find interesting about this is that they noted again that there was an influx of these and. Um, or they, they say in the footnote and above that they have these counterfeit oxys. And I'm just wondering, you know, I'd have to find the paperwork associated with the sample and then also with the corresponding court case. But it just, um, you know, one thing that they would do after people were arrested and if they wanted to secure an indictment, they would have the drug lab issue, um, sort of like a preliminary certificate saying like based upon screening tests, this appears or based upon uh, appearance of labeling, this appears to be what have you. And they presented the grand jury and secured an indictment. Uh, and then I, I can just see a scenario where something like that happens. And then the confirmation test comes back tramadol. Uh, and <laughs> there's pressure from the DA's office saying, what are you talking about? This is, this is oxy, right? Because otherwise we don't have a case. Now, I'm not saying that that happened here, but I can see that scenario unfolding in my mind. Um, you know, I, I don't know if uh, tramadol on a GCMS printout looks anything like oxycodone, but it seems like it should be hard to confuse the two and very hard for, um, <laughs> you know, oxy to not show up at all you know, two weeks before they run the second test. Like, I'm just wondering what prompted that second test. Exactly. And hopefully we'll get these emails that uh, are associated with these cases and we might be enlightened on some of that. With respect to Hinton Drug Lab Sample B11, this is number six, B11-12178. I like this one because the drug lab paperwork indicates that on June 21st, 2012, Approximately three months after Andy Dukin was canned, the primary chemist preliminarily identified a yellow octagonal uh, tablet with the number 40 imprinted on one side as possibly containing oxycodone or oxymorphine. Um, This finding was based on appearance and labeling, three color tests, and an inconclusive GC analysis. That is solid, my friends. Confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS on both occasions, first on June 23, 2012, and the second on June 28, 2012. Confirmatory chemists found the substance to contain oxymorphone. Uh, That finding was written on a control card. On July 5th, 2012, however, Hinton Drug Lab chemists certified that the sample contained oxycodone. Huh? What is that? And then when NMS retested it, it found oxymorphone, a class B substance, but not oxycodone. 
It seems possible that this inaccurate hit and drug... So this is... I love this. It seems possible that this inaccurate hit and drug lab finding was the result of a typographical or data entry error in the creation of a drug certificate, as opposed to a testing error. The practice at the Hinton lab was for the primary chemist to sub submit a completed control card to the evidence office for the creation of a drug certificate. Here, the completed control card indicates a finding of oxymorphone, and but the drug certificate indicates a finding of oxycodone. Therefore, it seems possible that the chemist analyzed the sample correctly, but that an error was committed during the creation and signing of the drug certificate. And what they should say underneath this paragraph is that shit should have been caught before it left the lab. Are you kidding me? Like, how many times did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they find out, I mean, everyone's going to make typos every once in a while, but like, sure. if they find out this is potentially a problem, what did they do to dig further? Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I can think of a situation where um, sort of like a, an error in the production of uh, a drug certificate could be a real problem. So, like, heroin is diacetyl morphine and there's a there's another substance called called monoacetyl uh morphine and that is a different um, (coughs) drug entirely i don't know that um the same charging decisions might have occurred as a result if a if a error like that occurs right but you know Pharmacies deal with this problem all the time uh, because it can be very important uh, and 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 uh, it's and dangerous actually. Yeah, life threatening. Um, life threatening if you get the wrong drug. Um, so they kind of have this system where where I don't know it, it may not be uniform, but somebody reads it out and somebody checks a, a, a box or or you you check it twice. You know, there's different systems to ensure that you don't make. Uh, uh, pretty obvious uh, typographical errors. Uh, and for that not to happen, given the number of eyes on this, right? Uh, uh, and, and I mean, there's a point at which you the chemist signs a, a, essentially an affidavit, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, under oath that's notarized that this is what we found. That's, that's a pretty good opportunity to be like, I might just double check this one more time. Um, and that doesn't, it didn't seem to happen, at least in this case. Um, and so I think that's sort of interesting. And and again, this isn't Annie Dukin. This is you know this isn't Annie Dukin rushing, right? This is other chemists who uh, there's no suggestion in the OIG report that other chemists were rushing. So why did this happen? We don't know because they didn't investigate. Absolutely. And um, and how other, how many other times did it happen? I think Chris mentioned that, but like this to me, if it happened once, it could happen again. You know, and the, the amount, if they were rushing, then these kind of typographical errors happen all the time. And there needs to be a good way to find it and to um, mitigate that so it doesn't happen, like have things scanned or have them auto-generate names. But uh, clearly they weren't interested in any of that. So there was, a, there was a couple other things at the end about like finding more drugs in in some cases in some samples than the Hinton lab had found <clears throat> and um in other kind of minor things that we won't go over now but what we're really interested in in 
uh, and what we will can we'll, we'll tease for this episode at the end of this episode and then go into huge detail in is BZP and Foxy. And it's interesting, again, they limit what these um, substances that were identified as class E by these labs, they limit it to just BZP and Foxy, but it wasn't just BZP and Foxy. It was a bunch of any, any new drug that was coming in a lot of them were basically being called Class E because they they didn't have to run tests on Class E. Is that correct, guys? They could just well, do a spot test a spot through public records requests, and we also know what people over at the Amherst lab were, were doing. Um, yeah, when when some when they couldn't figure out what else to do, they would just call it a Class E. Yeah, it was their catch-all. Well, the 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 statute uh, lists in sort of boring fashion the the actual drugs uh, or at least sufficiently identifies them it's a little weird how they word it but uh, uh, it, it identifies you know heroin cocaine etc um, class E doesn't endeavor to do that because it would be you know it would you could fill a whole library with all the names of all the drugs that you could get prescribed so they just say you know just generically yeah if it's a drug you need a prescription for uh, and you don't have that that's class E so it's very clever to just treat that as a catch-all category, but of course, that's not what it is, and that's not the purpose that it serves. Um, and and so I think that's a pretty intentional. I mean, we'll get to BZP, but I think all the narratives proffered thus far fall apart because BZP looks awfully intentional um, and and sort of uh, systemic. So during the course of the sampling, the sample retesting described above, the OIG discovered that the Hinton Drug Lab had certified two substances, BZP um, and 5-methoxy-NN, let's just call it Foxy, and BZP and Foxy as Class E substances, although neither was a controlled substance under the Massachusetts general laws. BZP and Foxy are substances similar to MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy. MDMA is classified under Massachusetts general laws as a class B controlled substance. Although both BZP and Foxy have been federally classified as schedule one controlled substances since 2004 and thus made illegal under the federal system, the Commonwealth has not yet amended its drug laws to make either substance illegal. Uh, between 2008 and 2012, Hinton Drug Lab chemists determined that 187 samples contained BZP. It is the OIG's understanding that the Hinton Drug Lab chemists certified these samples as BZP, a Class E subsection B drug, which is a prescription drug other than those included in classes A, B, C, D, and subsection A of this class. That is, like you said, Ilias, very broad. BZP is not a prescription drug and thus should not have been certified as a class E substance and should not have, and what they left out is chemists should not have been testifying on the stand under oath that it was. In in January uh, 2012, Hinton Drug Lab chemists issued one cert- certificate of analysis certifying a substance to be FOXY, a class C subsection B sub drug. Foxy, like BZP, is not a prescription drug and therefore should not have been certified as a Class E substance. So, um, 
In 2011, Hinton Drug Lab chemists internally discussed how to certify substances that were federally scheduled but not classified in Massachusetts. In July of 2011, one Hinton Lab chemist sought guidance from the director of the Division of Analytical Chemistry about how to report BZP, who instructed the chemist to report only the identity of the substance without certifying that it fell within any class under Massachusetts law. What they leave out there is that that person, her name was Julianne Nasif. And she, what she actually said was, don't report it as anything. Um, report, just report it as federally classified and, quote, leave it up to the DAs. That's what she told these chemists, but they did not say that in this report. Even thereafter, in November of 2011, you know that from finding the emails. I noticed. I know that from uh, a myriad of public records requests on this subject, and I found the email that they're talking about here, and I can post it up to Twitter. I can do that tonight, um, and uh, and show everyone that you know Julianne Nasif told these chemists to leave it up to the DAs to figure out these determinations, because honestly, they're the ones making the arrests. They're the ones arresting people for things that aren't illegal. You know, like it should be, they, they should, they should have gone back with their tail between their legs and said, Hey, this is uncertified," And then lobbied the legislature to make, to close that loophole. But instead they had the chemist lie. Um, all right. Even thereafter in November of 2011, so, so your director tells you to leave it up to the DAs and, and say that it's federally classified, right? And then, so can you imagine in what kind of lab that you would go around your boss's back? Like, even thereafter, in November of 2011, certain hidden drug lab chemists remain unsure of how to proceed and ask the supervisor of the drug lab what the drug lab's policy was for certifying BZP since it was federally scheduled and not controlled in Massachusetts. Chemists continued to certify BZP as a Class E substance through April of 2012. That, to me, is unbelievable. The OIG conducted a review of all other Class E substances at the Hinton Lab had certified and did not discover any other misclassifications of this nature. I'm not sure that that is true. And the OIG notified the appropriate district attorney's office of each sample that the Hinton Drug Lab found to either BZP or Foxy as part of this case, uh, of a case within its jurisdiction. What the OIG does not say is that the state police did the same exact thing. And the state police have never been accused of any malfeasance. The state police have never uh, been brought up in any of these reports as being a lab that's done anything wrong. But the OIG knew that the state police did the same exact thing and left them out of the report. So we know, again, that the state police was doing this through public records requests, but tying that back to the OIG, knowing that to be the case, what? What's that? So, so we, we found the public records requests indicating yeah. that, uh, I'm sorry, we found through public records requests that uh, the state police was doing this too. Yes, right? yes. So, so the, and the way we know that the OIG knows that is because John Verner of the Attorney General's office sent uh, a myriad of emails to the OIG around this time. The OIG contacted him when this happened 
back mm-hmm. in when they found it. I can't remember when it maybe was 2014 or, or whatever they were initially looking at it. And then John Werner sent an email out to the state police um, because they had control over all the Hinton records at that time and said, hey, can you find like how many times did this happen? And it happened a lot more than what they are saying in this report. And it happened with the state police and it happened at Hinton and Amherst as well. And they say that in responses to these emails, we can talk about these emails in our next episode, but, um, and that's a teaser for you, but we, we have found that we know that they knew before this report was published, they being the OIG, that the state police also were found to misidentify records. And I have, through public records requests, found state police procedures that they have written approved SOPs that instruct you not to say that these drugs are certified as anything if they aren't uh, classified within the state. If it's a state court, they they say to just say it's fed, it's controlled, uh, it's scheduled federally, but not locally. That's what their their procedures told them to do, and they broke those procedures and lied in court about it, which is crazy. So and, and by the way, scheduled federally and um, but but legal locally is uh, uh, also known as marijuana. So uh, I think when people hear, well, it's scheduled federally and they pound the table, just remember that marijuana is is uh, I- illegal federally. But, uh, you know, states have begun to legalize it, um, creating a real problem for the feds. Absolutely. And it just, in this, like, I mean, so if you're saying, so what? Big deal. It's still drugs, you know, whatever. It's like, well, like, why are they lying? (laughs) Why do they feel the need to lie? What is getting done with this? And then they compound the lies by taking, those are the same people that say, this isn't a big deal, that also complain about our tax dollars being wasted for X, Y, and Z. When, you know, we by them not telling the truth, we've wasted hundreds of millions of tax dollars to try to get to the bottom of what is going on here. And they're still not telling the truth and they waste our time and they waste money in court. Like all of these cases should have been dismissed out of hand and we shouldn't have wasted any taxpayer money going to court, but instead they threw people in jail for drugs that they knew were not illegal and they lied about it in court. And to me, that is incredibly significant. The cover-up is worse than the crime. And that's usually the case, right? The OIG, the OIG concludes that the, the only uh, parties to blame for BZP is the Massachusetts Senate, who uh, had a bill to make BZP illegal in 2011. But as of 2016, that bill was still pending. So it's really the Senate's fault. Yeah. Right. Uh, call, your senator, call your senator and blame him or her for BZP. Unbelievable. All right. Well, uh, that's, that's it for now, guys. Um, we will come back. Uh, in probably a week and do the BZP episode, which is going to be a good one. So uh, you'll definitely want to come in for that. Uh, Thanks always, Ilias and Chris. And as always, uh, definitely subscribe and write us a review and give us a a good review if you like the podcast. So uh, thanks again for your support and we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.